I think politics tracks large scale change. But if we understood the psychological changes that spur people to take action, you know, for example, against an oppressive regime or the ones that where they don't. And we wonder from the outside why they aren't. And, you know, there are definitely society wide factors. And then there are these more individual things in the conversations that people are having and the media that they're consuming and how that affects their decisions. That it's all part of this big jumbled up mess of attempting to predict and to guide, I think, human behavior in a positive way. Welcome to episode two of Rebalancing Act, where Kieran and Leslie Ann, two law grads, talk about climate solutions. We know that Canada has to solve climate change. Let's talk about how we get there while making our lives and communities better along the way. Nothing said in this podcast constitutes the formation of a legal relationship and all opinions are our own. Today, I will be interviewing expert in motivational interviewing Vincent Shoup on how we can have long overdue conversations about climate change in a way that is actually proven to change hearts and minds. Then, Leslie Ann and I do a little reflecting of our own about how motivational interviewing fits into our understanding of transformational political change. Plus, how to save birds with one simple hack on climate allies, painting windmills. All this and more on today's episode of Rebalancing Act. So I just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to Vince. And Vince is someone I met when I felt a little bit lost, especially with respect to what someone as an individual is really able to do in the face of climate change. And what I discovered is maybe the most important type of individual action that any of us are able to take. That is to talk to each other about it and actually listen to what each other is saying in ways that are empathetic and open and inspire change. And this is exactly what Vince has generously devoted his time to teaching, a technique called motivational interviewing that has proven to be the best way to talk to someone if you actually want to change their mind. So having said that, to start us off, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you came to motivational interviewing in the context of climate action. I, really, the journey started really by accident. Uh, I was just cowpooling randomly one day with my husband, who was training to be a, uh, a clinical psychologist at the University of Buffalo. And we're just cowpooling. And uh, I knew that he was doing different, like, clinical work as as a student getting trained in this, at, like, with people who would have, like, like drugs or something. and. Uh, I asked him, like, you know, how do you help somebody, like, who's addicted to drugs? Like, like what do you do? And, uh, you know, he said a few different things. I remember him saying the words motivational interviewing. I didn't know what those were. Um, and I was driving, and I'm pretty, you know, focused on the road. So, like, it, something in my memory encoded that. Uh, and then... Nothing really happened at that moment, but um, if you fast forward a few years later, so this was in like 2011, 2012, something like that. Fast forward to 2014. Yeah, so I had just moved to Toronto. I didn't really know anybody who was here, and uh, I, I got involved with this thing called the, the People's Climate March. I'd, I'd never been to a march before, and... I met a lot of people who were interested in environmental topics. I myself wasn't interested. I'm not really much of like a protester. That was never really like who I was. Um, but I like I did it just because I wanted to meet some people. And um, so I ended up meeting like the, 
the co-facilitator of the march, and I asked, you know, like, well, what are we doing, um, you know, after the march is over? Because I had done some research that said the the biggest impact from the march is not actually the march itself, but actually the the organizing that happens and the new coalitions and things that emerge as a result of the march. So I was like, okay, so I wanted to put my focus there because if they did this march, I wanted there to be something meaningful to emerge from it. And I wanted there to be like something happening as a result. So I, uh, I spoke to him and, uh, we ended up forming an organization. And for three months, we looked and looked and looked and said, what's going wrong? What's, what's the root cause of like what's causing us to not be able to act as a society. Like what we've known for decades that we need to do something about climate change. We need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. And despite knowing that for decades, the only thing that's ever reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is economic recession. That's the only thing. So then it's like, it was clear that there was no scaled solution. I was at a loss for what to actually do about it. And then and we were kind of, to a certain extent, ready to kind of just give up and move on. And then uh, in December of 2014, uh, we said, well, why don't we just go to the library and let's just read. We went to the library, we checked out 15 books between the two of us, and we started reading. The second book that I started reading, I never got beyond that one because I found the magic in that second book. It was a, a book called The Transition Handbook. And randomly in there, you know how like in you see in a textbook, there'll be like a grayed out sort of uh, like case study or something like that. And it's written by somebody else, not the author. And it's put in there as an example or like a different perspective. So there was a two-page thing like that in the uh, original publishing of The Transition Handbook. And it was written by this psychologist, and it was basically just there to kind of talk about, well, what's the psychology of change? And randomly in this two-page sort of thing, he says the words motivational interviewing. And that reminded me of, that's that thing that my husband does. And I was like, what is that? It was that bite of curiosity of what is that, that motivational interviewing thing that started a journey that has basically led me to where I am right now. That's an awesome story. And I think so frequently when we talk about transitions and political change, especially in historical retrospect, what's ignored is the psychology of it, the tipping points that made people act. And when we haven't been able to successfully enact those through institutions, it seems like something like motivational interviewing that works at an individual level is a good way to fill in those gaps. Why don't we segue into the way that you perceive the problem of climate communication and how motivational interviewing can help? And here it might be useful to touch on how our media environment has gotten more polarized and siloed over time. And as a result, the problems that motivational interviewing seeks to solve have gotten worse over time, making the need for motivational interviewing more urgent. Why don't we actually start with the media environment? So, I mean, our media environment is one such where, and we can see it, we can feel it in our bones. Everybody knows that it's there. It's, it's a polarization. It's a fabric to 
effectively the construct of our society as it is right now, which is this left versus right uh, independence in whatever conservatism is supposed to actually be versus, you know, liberalism and whatever liberalism is supposed to be. We've been kind of drawn further and further apart from each other till the point where the other side has lost their humanity. When we talk about politics in a clinical or academic setting, we talk about it as a spectrum where you fall somewhere along the conservative to liberal sides. But sometimes in today's media environment, these categories feel more like camps, where in one or the other and there's no gradation or room to move on specific issues. You're in or you're out. Oh, it's definitely true. It, so it's the identity politics. It's like a lot of times people are like brought along with a message that is something that A, isn't in their best interest, or B, something that they don't even actually agree with just because their circle of people that are closest with them are kind of sort of in the circle. So there's this this network that is created around, I'm the type of person that thinks that climate change isn't real. And e even though we all actually know that it's real, including conservatives. So if we think for a second that conservatives think that climate change isn't happening. So what we talked about, like, what is the gaps, right? Like, what gap needs to be filled in? One of the biggest gaps that needs to be filled in when we try to reach across to the other side, be it a conservative reaching across to a liberal or be it a liberal reaching across to a conservative, how are we reaching out? And usually, in all of my experience, in looking at the communications of environmentalists, uh, environmentalists, when reaching out to uh, conservative-minded people, are very, very likely, and it's not everybody, so I can't say 100% because that would not be true. They are attempting to persuade the conservative to, like, let's say, look at the science. The result of that is that the conservative person feels beat over the head. And nobody wants to be saved. It's, it's kind of insulting to them. And it really gets conservatives to put up their guard. And when they put up their guard, like, we've lost everything again. The polarization just got worse. Something that resonated with me when you were talking about motivational interviewing and teaching it to me is that appeals to the science aren't a neutral thing. It's not as if, oh, if I don't convince them, I'm actually doing no harm. It's that when you evoke resistance, it causes people to actually dig in their heels more. So unsuccessful attempts at persuasion aren't harmless. They're actually driving people further apart. I really have to limit my media diet for, for any kind of news on environmental topics at all, because it's just so hard to read, knowing and watching as the environmentalist is communicating is literally shooting themselves in the foot. It's just that, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Though I do very much empathize with these feelings of genuine and legitimate frustration with the lack of policy and action are completely and absolutely valid and we should act on them. Even if acting on them in the way we do isn't necessarily the best way to move the conversation forward. It's. I think there's something here that has to be said too, which is, Whenever I've gone with the order of saying, don't talk about the science, you know, then people, then what happens is environmentalists erect walls. And uh, so I, I find that like 
the motivational interviewing like and, and what else can I say has to come first and then the environmentalist person makes it they can allow themselves to do something different after that. So ultimately, like we we may have actually erected a wall here in the audience of this podcast, you know, just by doing that. So then if we actually can take an inward look and, and say, like, you know, whoever is listening to this and say, did I feel resistance to what that guy Vince was talking about? You know, did I say, well, you know, we need to talk about science. That would be resistance. The source of that resistance is you need to have a different way. You need to have something else that you feel confident about doing. What else am I supposed to say if I'm not talking about science? Until you can answer that question, you can't get rid of the science. You're going to have to just science them. And so uh, that's why I just offer like as many like free motivational interviewing workshops as I can because this is basically the the training that people need to figure out how to actually draw in people from the conservative side. And it's actually a lot easier than you would ever imagine. And literally in a few weeks, people can learn how to do this. That's great. Even though the current approach isn't working, there's so much hope for how we can take these feelings of anger and frustration and desire for change and channel them in a more effective way to actually reach people on the other side. I know you have a few stories of successful instances of reaching people on the other side, if you'd like to share one with us. One story is, is just such a unexpected sort of thing. I was working to support the Green Party. I was managing uh, campaigns in Kitchener-Waterloo, and I was off doing canvassing one day for one of the candidates, and I knocked on someone's door. A woman answered. Uh, she identified herself as being uh, a supporter of the of the PPC party, and I had identified myself as being a representative of the Green Party. And you could see that in her body language, she was going to be like, "Well, I don't really, you know, support the Green Party. Uh, I'm PPC." And then, you know, that was almost the end of of a conversation. I responded to say, "Okay, thank you very much." you know, for, for letting me know that. And I think what's most important is is that you vote, even if that means voting for the PPC party. I'm not here to convince you of anything. I'm actually just here to learn more about what your needs are and to bring your point of view back to the candidate. Because if the Green Party candidate wins, she's still representing you. And we still need to know like your thoughts and your feelings on things. So if you'd be interested, I'd love to actually just ask you a couple questions just so I can get your feel on a, a couple different things. And I'll report those back to uh, our candidate. And she was like, okay. And you could see her soften. I didn't resist her. She has the right to choose to vote for whoever it's her right to vote. That's the beauty of it. So we empowered her to, you know, have the right that she already has anyway, but we didn't kind of counteract or say, well, you know, oh, this is the reason she should vote green, which would have evoked the resistance. We ended up talking a little bit about uh, carbon pricing, and she actually brought up the topic. She at one point in time said, you know, okay, well, 
I think that like the environmental thing, it's all like we're being bamboozled and, you know, it's a good thing that that guy left Greenpeace because he told us what was really up. And, and these are like widely circulated sort of like keystone climate denial figures that get their story kind of put out in uh, large, wide circles. So I, I've, I've heard the story. I knew exactly what she was talking about. And, um, and so I said, okay, so then you're seeking sort of like, you know, your own perspective, a true perspective, and, you know, this spoke to you. And then at some point I did a reframe. So she kept talking about like environmental this, environmental that. I wasn't talking about it at all. I was just kind of reflecting what she was saying. So I was like, so what's important to you is not this carbon price. But what seems to be more important is just are we going to actually have sustainable like food and water so we can actually like have a nice life? And she's just like, yeah. And so then we ended up talking about that. And the end of our conversation was on protecting the land. And this is one of the highest, greenest objectives that we could even have, which is protecting the land forward and historically sort of more in tune way of just being in touch with the land. So anyway, so that's where the conversation ended. And we had a very like pleasant goodbye. And you could tell that she appreciated being able to express this. That's a really great story. And I think I'll highlight two things from it. The fact that our current ways of communicating with each other aren't working that well doesn't mean we should stop communicating. Like the fact that we're living in a more tribal political dynamic right now means that we need motivational interviewing. Your anecdote really highlights the importance and urgency of motivational interviewing. When we talk about psychology, sometimes it's hard to buy into it, but this story really helps it click for people. The other thing is that when we're we're thinking about climate solutions, We can't lose sight of the importance of democratic institutions as a part of the puzzle. Leslie-Ann and I want to focus the podcast in part on how democracy, democratic institutions, and the ability to participate in politics are important climate solutions and also just for the notion of a good life and our society being a good one. So that person's right to vote is important just like yours and mine is. So I'm curious to hear what success would look like to you. If people were talking about issues using motivational interviewing, what might happen? Well, I mean, one success that that I like to actually bring up is to do with the carbon price. So we did a uh, a motivational interviewing training with the Citizens Climate Lobby, which is uh, here in Canada. It's a very large constituent lobby group, constituents, residents speaking to their elected representatives. That's what it is. And effectively just using their voice to say, you're representing me. This is what I want to talk about. Uh, So I did motivational interviewing training at their annual conference, after which they have a, um, a day where they go and speak to all of their members of parliament. Within about a week after that lobby weekend that they were doing, the liberal government here in Canada said, okay, we're going to take the carbon price. We're going to backfill it into any province that doesn't have a carbon price. And it became the first federal carbon fee and dividend in the world. I mean, that I think is probably the best example that I have. There's also 
a more sort of just granular example. So that's like very big picture. That's, you know, na nationwide policy. But just at, at a smaller level, the building that I am in, we had a motivational interviewing inspired lobby setup that we did where we drew people in. They did this waste sorting game. Uh, we put them into a situation where they were able to teach themselves how to sort more accurately. They themselves graded their own waste sorting test. And all throughout this, we used an interpersonal style, very much like motivational interviewing. And then we were able to note a 7% improvement in the waste diversion in our building. And that was the only real propagator of that change. From the, the top level, you know, in policy down to I worked with my community, there was a lot of different ways. Whenever we're communicating with somebody, then we can use this and be more effective. That's awesome. Thank you for both of those. So I just have two last questions for you. Who is somebody that inspires you? And if there's one resource for further learning or further reading that people interested in motivational interviewing can seek out, what would you recommend? Well, let me actually start with the um, additional reading. So my favorite book on the topic of motivational interviewing is Sylvie Now King's book, which is Am I with Adolescents and Young People? Even if you were wanting to communicate with other groups that weren't young people, I still find this my favorite book. I love her writing style, and I love the way that she has this little call-outs every uh, few pages or so. It's kind of like a little hint or tip or try this type of a situation. And those things were the things that I think helped me to kind of develop my skillfulness in motivational interviewing. So it's little, and that was really, really wonderful for me. So that's the, the reading that is my favorite. And who do I look up to? It's, it's such an interesting question. I guess to a certain extent, I, I've done so much motivational interviewing, it kind of changes the way that I think. I look up to the woman in that story that I told who was voting for PPC. I mean, do I do I agree or want to vote PPC myself? No, not at all. But here's somebody who is in that world in the middle of this polarization and I invited her to a conversation and she said yes. And we had a wonderful conversation and we didn't have to agree on everything, but she was able to trust me enough to be able to have that conversation. You know, despite all of the expectations that I was going to, you know, beat her over the head with science and try and get her to like vote green and do this and do that, even despite all of those feelings that she may have been having and expectations that I was going to like ride, it, ride in on a high horse and tell her what to do, even despite all that. She still didn't close the door on me. And I think that that's just so wonderful. What a wonderful person to still have the conversation despite all those feelings. So, I mean, that's the thing that comes to mind right now. That's a great answer. And I think there's a part of all of us that's able to be like that. And remembering that about ourselves and being able to find that open mindedness in conversations with ourselves and other people is something that we should all be striving towards. Thank you so much for such an amazing interview. I think there's so much of value to think about that you were able to provide. So thanks so much, Vince. Oh, it's my pleasure. And good luck on, on the whole podcast thing. And I look forward to hearing uh, many more. And now for a little reflection with Leslie Ant. So let's talk about motivational interviewing. First of all, bad branding. 
unfortunate that it's called motivational interviewing. Totally. When I first heard about it, the idea I had in my mind of what it would be did not match at all what it actually is. I know. And the first time I met Vince is because I went to a motivational interviewing session. And I felt so bad for this guy that was there who clearly was there to learn how to like be a better interviewee, which is a super fair thing to go to a weekend session about. But motivational interviewing needs a rebrand. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the on the interview that I did with Vince. What I actually found really interesting to start with was just learning a little bit about where motivational interviewing came from and that it really does stem from the field of psychology. Because where I was first introduced to it was when I was doing a program at the Cody Institute at the University of St. Francis Xavier. And I learned about it in the context of community development work. I had always known it as a tool to use for change, as opposed to knowing it was ever based in psychology. I didn't know that. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think the idea of being resistant to that idea, or not the idea of motivational interviewing, but that feeling of resistance you can sometimes feel when confronted with some of the ideas that were talked about in the interview is really tough because it's an uncomfortable feeling to sit with, but it's something that after listening to the interview, I've been trying to be more aware of when I'm encountering those moments. Definitely. There are definitely evolutionary forces hard at work against us, I would say. And I have, I've actually found it's interesting that trying to apply motivation to bring to my whole to my own life. There are some situations when it's easy. And it's actually most difficult with deeply held beliefs with people that you care about. So on some level, my close family members, I feel like it's really, really hard to motivationally interview them just because you have such an established relationship and patterns of behavior and being that to overcome those set cognitive patterns is extremely difficult. So I'm glad that you liked the interview. I think we both have a little bit of experience with motivational interviewing so like it wasn't new content to us but I do think that there are a lot of people who would benefit from an introduction to something like this. I think that you know with the environmental movement sometimes we're worried about like scaring away the people that are trying and I think that that's valid like you want to be open and inclusive but part of that is actually about employing techniques that make people feel heard and empathized with. And I mean, this is true of any organization, not just environmental organization. There are environmental groups that are working on so many different aspects of the climate crisis and other environmental issues. And I think strategies like this are also really important for folks to be able to inter interrogate their own perspective of what is our organization actually trying to accomplish. Something I've talked about with an organization I work with sometimes is that they've stated they want to engage in Indigenous solidarity work, but they very often find themselves taking a position on issues without having thought about, do these issues relate to the climate crisis? Is this an issue we need to be engaging in? Or is this an internal issue between Indigenous communities? And in that case, how do you pick which side to be in solidarity with? And while I didn't engage in a formal motivational interviewing process, even understanding this process is really helpful for me to be able to ask some of those important questions to get people to self-reflect because I can't tell an organization what their purpose is. But being able to prod someone to self-reflect and come to their own conclusion is really helpful even if you're not trying to change their mind, but simply trying to help somebody clarify their own purpose or mission as well. Well, it's one of those things where I, I, absolutely don't buy into this whole humans are bad. But I think that there's a trend on the internet and also in discourse of 
humans being inherently terrible and destructive. And most people want the same things in life. You know, we're not, we're not that special. We're pretty simple creatures. And I think if you're able to help people self-reflect on what they want in life, those things turn out to be more universal and more relatable to your life than you can imagine. You know, it's the example where Vince talks about it turns out that he wants similar things to a woman who supports a party that's on the other end of the political spectrum from him. And if, you know, you only listen to the official discourse, they would never seem to have anything in common. But she wants her version of a good life. And so does he. Absolutely. And that's something that when it comes to politics, I think about a lot, especially coming from an area where I grew up that is politically very, very conservative. The Conservative Party in Canada wins in a landslide every year. And I've now moved to an area that tends to be much more on the opposite end of the political spectrum, tending to be liberal or NDP. And everyone has a right to their own approach to get to what the, what would be a good life. And no one has a monopoly on the right way to get there either. And I think framing things in that way isn't helpful. And that's what I think is really important about that example from Vince as well, is that you can think you have totally opposite views to somebody, but really you just have different perspectives on how to get to the same result. And like, I understand that on some level, yes, we're presenting an idealized version of different political parties. But like, we're talking media environments leading people to be more siloed aside, that it's absolutely true. I really appreciate for this reason that I was able to have an actual academic, you know, an academic education in how politics works. And in retrospect, I think that it might have even benefited from a more multidisciplinary approach that involved psychology to understand how change happens. Because I think politics tracks large-scale change, but if we understood the psychological changes that spur people to take action, you know, for example, against an oppressive regime or the ones that where they don't take action. And we wonder from the outside why they aren't. And, you know, there are definitely society-wide factors. And then there are these more individual things in the conversations that people are having and the media that they're consuming and how that affects their decisions. That it's all part of this big jumbled up mess of attempting to predict and to guide, I think, human behavior in a positive way. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important. And I know for me, I can think back to many examples in my life where something has made me consider one of my deeply held beliefs and I have to either sit with that discomfort or at times I've not done that and simply rejected that challenge to my beliefs and whether or not if I had engaged, if I had sat with that discomfort, would I have changed my mind? I don't know. But I think I much prefer now to sit with that discomfort and to let my beliefs be challenged because I don't remember who where I first heard this, but it's the idea that being challenged on your beliefs, if they don't change your mind, will only make your ability to articulate your beliefs stronger because you're confronted with questions and other opinions. And if you still hold the same belief at the end, which shouldn't necessarily be your goal, but if you do, it's with a deeper understanding of your own opinion. Yeah. And sometimes people aren't ready to change. And I think motivational interviewing as a discipline accepts that you're not always going to change someone's mind. And no matter how hard you try, whatever technique that you do, you cannot change someone else's mind for them. I think a really important aspect of it is that it recognizes the fundamental autonomy that we all have over our own minds and our actions. And I think that's really the best way to approach changing somebody's mind. Because if you approach someone from the perspective of they are wrong and don't have a right to hold that belief, 
even if you change their mind, I can't imagine a way you can do that and salvage that relationship. And I think not only is talking to people in a way that can support their engagement in environmental and climate work important, but I think relationships are incredibly important as well, no matter what someone believes that aspect of motivational interviewing that regardless of whether someone changes their mind is likely to deepen your relationship, I think is also so, so important. Because that relationship can still change their mind later. That relationship can help them determine what is accurate accurate information about our political systems or about climate change later on. It doesn't just serve that one purpose in that one moment. I also think this is an individual and maybe one of the most important ways to fill that gap between we have to act and what can I as an individual do to bridge that gap between having to act and urgently acting. And I think motivationally interviewing each other and having these more empathetic and open conversations about climate change and bringing it from a topic that's taboo and polarized and just don't really want to find out what someone else believes about it in case they believe something bad or some to something where it's okay if they believe something different, but it's important to bring it out the open is actually one of the most important things that we can do. You don't know what impact individuals can have on what we see as these very big actions that as individuals we can't take because somebody has to take those actions. It may not be us, but we don't know who can influence those actions. So at Rebalancing Act, we really like to leave you guys with something practical that you can do based on the episode and the conversation we've had. And so I think something I would really suggest for all of our listeners to do is look up an example of a motivational interview online. We'll link to at least one in the show notes and watch it, think about it, maybe Google a little bit more, and then try to have a conversation based in motivational interviewing with somebody in your life. It doesn't have to be a formal interview, but have a conversation with them that is based around those principles, for example, or help someone come to a reflection or simply just self-reflect on your own. I think that's a great takeaway, Leslie Ann. And now, last but not least, we have this week's episode of Climate Allies. What happens if you paint windmill blades? Turns out, it's good. And this is so hilarious, because why didn't we think of this before on this week's Climate Allies? We are talking about peeps who want to paint wind turbines black to reduce the amount of birds that get killed by them, which just sounds like a win-win-win. It's like, you know, when a phone or a computer company, they have the gray version, but then they come out with the black laptop and you're like, whoa, this is it. We're giving you the new piece of high-tech equipment. And honestly, I'm really looking forward to when windmills become the next mural. Because you know how they spin and it leaves that kind of residual color in your vision? Like when you're the kid with the pinwheels that you're blowing and it kind of blurs? Think of the amazing, really rad murals that could be done on a spinning windmill. I have no idea how to do it. I am not the artistic one. But I'm positive that it's possible. Anything but white. Anything I would say on the dark end of the spectrum. Now, to be clear, I am extrapolating from the research that's been done. Research done was on black windmills. But I would guess other dark colors would work as well. And they can reduce mortality of birds by up to 70%. 70% more birds! Anything that is a win for the climate and a win for the bird populations is just, you know, that's real climate, climate allyship right there. Especially because it just seems like the kind of thing that can be retrofitted, that isn't that expensive, and that looks pretty cool. We're going to link the study in the show notes. Want more Rebalancing Act? Tune in two Fridays from now for an expert interview on the parallels and differences between the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. What lessons can we learn about the relative effectiveness of different responses to COVID? What climate solutions can be drawn from our experiences in the pandemic? 
We highlight the importance of resilient communities and resilient systems. See you then.